From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers. I'm David Bolander, editor of Finance and Commerce. Thanks so much for joining. Beyond the Skyline is sponsored by Ironmark Building Company. Whether it's a new luxury apartment building in the North Loop or expanding the community in the suburbs, Ironmark builds quality projects for discerning clients. Ironmark's foundation is built on a culture of collaboration with clients and projects that stand the test of time. Talk to Ironmark's award-winning team about your next construction project today. Go to ironmarkbuildingco.com. In this episode, Adam Dunnick, Government Affairs Director with the North Central States Regional Council of Carpenters, talks to FNC reporter Brian Johnson. Dunnick talks about his role with the Carpenters Union, the upcoming legislative session, and his experience with the Metropolitan Council. All right, great. Well, pleased to be joined by Adam Dunnick, uh, Director of Government Affairs for the North Central States Regional Council of Carpenters based in St. Paul. Um, Adam, how are you doing today? I'm really great. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you for joining me here on the podcast and um, want to uh, look forward to talking to you about a number of different issues related to labor, your time on the Met Council, the Twin Cities construction outlook and things of that nature. But I was wondering if you could just start off by maybe telling us uh, a little bit about the, the Carpenters Union. Um, how many members you have, um, who, who you represent, that kind of thing. Sure. No, happy to. Thanks again, Brian, for having me. And I'm, I'm Adam Dunnick. My job is the director of government affairs. I oversee all the communications, uh, political work and the electoral and, and legislative lobbying work of the regional council here. And our regional council is structured a little bit differently than a lot of the other building trades unions. We're a little bit larger in size. We cover six states. So the states of Wisconsin, Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Nebraska, and Iowa. We have approximately 27 to 28,000 members uh, in all six states and about 12, about 11 or 12,000 in Minnesota. Really what we have. And our members do a lot of different construction in a lot of different sectors. And by that, I mean, we represent pile drivers, millwrights, floor covers and interior systems carpenters, as well as just regular commercial carpenters and, and finished carpenters. So they do a lot of bit, a lot of everything from highway heavy work to industrial construction, a lot of uh, interior um, interior systems construction on hospitals, schools, uh, commercial buildings and the like. Um, a little, like I said, a little bit of everything. So we monitor lots of different markets. We're paying attention to what happens in energy, pay really close attention to what's happening in housing, especially multifamily housing. Uh, we watch a lot of the sectors like, uh, like hospitals and, and the medical field like uh, other construction that's been booming lately, like um, what we've seen with with uh, either microchip uh, production or data storage or some of the uh, sort of more newly demanded uh, ways in which our economy is working through things like, you know, uh, databases and, and data systems. Um, mm-hmm. So we do, we, our members do a little bit of all that work. Um, some, pe- some of our members work for the same contractor their whole career and some members uh, work for a couple of different contractors every season, just kind of wherever the work goes. And mm-hmm. um, it seems to me, just I want not to get ahead of ourselves here, but it seems to me the general construction outlook is a little bit 
Um, it's cautiously optimistic. I think this next year looks good. People are always nervous that construction has been going pretty strong for about the last decade or so. So when's the next recession around the corner? And there's there's concerns and worries about that for sure. Yeah, for sure. And um, so just to get back a little bit to your membership, you said about 27, 28,000 members. How does that compare to recent years? Have you seen those numbers go up or stay about the same? Or Yeah, I think a lot of the trade unions, ours included, hit kind of a low point around 2009, 2010 just with the recession that was happening. And we've certainly grown a lot since then. Our hours, I would say our work hours, which we pay close attention to, probably peaked in 2019. Mm -hmm. 2020 and 21 were both really good years, but uh, I'd say the last three or four years have been roughly about the same, a little bit down uh, some months and a little bit back up the next month. Um, but they, they've been very strong the last four or five years, and we hope it continues. Uh, the, Construction outlook. We hear from contractors when they're calling us for, for uh, to supply uh, manpower and, and workforce. It's been pretty good. The other thing I'd say is construction has become a lot less seasonal than it used to be. Mm -hmm. you know, it used to always be really busy from April to uh, October, maybe November, but we're seeing a lot more of our members working year round. There's plenty to do even in the, the winter months, and we're still taking in apprentice. For example, we're still taking in apprentices at a time like now in December or January, whereas in the past, that hadn't always been the case. And, and a lot of your members, I assume, stayed busy during the height of the pandemic and the shutdown because construction was deemed uh, essential work. Um, how? Mm -hmm. what, can you tell me a little bit more about that and sort of how that impacted um, your membership? Yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty, I think, for, you know, a couple of weeks when the, when contractors and the construction industry was monitoring what happened around the country, how different uh, states and regions were dealing with COVID. And so we weren't sure, but when we became, you know, named as an essential component, that, that part of the economy, uh, that, that members would stay working. I'd say there was a slight dip for a month or so in hours as people just weren't sure, but it continued to be a pretty busy time in construction. I think part of it is because our hope, you know, and our hope is, and we help train on this at the time and, and, and continue to do is that members can stay safe while they're working, both socially distance wise, as well as kind of performing the work safely. Uh, that wasn't always the case. And here, here and there, we had to work with uh, employers on that issue and make sure that it was that way. But I think um, you know, the building didn't really slow down. And as we've seen with other parts of the economy, whether that's Seeing the tax collections being up for government, for city, local governments, and state governments, whether it's because a lot of our economy could continue, uh, people could keep going to work, and so there was still a lot of demand being driven. Uh, and frankly, some of our members were working on the front lines too. They were a part of constructing some of the needed uh, medical care facilities, some of the supply that was demanded. All of a sudden, uh, companies needed to build a bunch of ventilators, needed to supply. Uh, the rest of the country and the world, frankly, with some different things, um, manufacturing-wise, that our members were sometimes part of part of that supply chain, depending mm -hmm. on kind of where along lines they're working. So it stayed pretty busy throughout the the uh, the pandemic. You know, we had monitor it very closely. We we wanted to be helpful for our members and be a resource for them if they were having either issues on the job site or health issues, frankly, too. But um, mm -hmm. by and large, it stayed pretty steady. Okay. And just to back up a little bit again, how can you talk about how you got into this line of work 
mm-hmm. and sort of how your how your career journey has progressed. I know you've been spent a number of years on the Met Council, including mm-hmm. being the chair from 2015 to 2017, I believe. Um, you know, tell us about that career journey and and what you've taken from those experiences. Sure. I think one of the things about me that some people know or don't know is that I actually come out of the construction field myself. And I worked uh, first as a summer job while I was going to college uh, doing highway heavy construction. I was uh, I worked non-union for a couple of years in western Minnesota, which is where I'm from. I grew up in the Wilmer area, up in Kenai County. And then once I moved to the Twin Cities, I worked uh, in a, for a union company. I was a 49er and got active with my local union back in 2002, 2003, about 20 years ago. And coming up through the ranks taught me a lot. I mean, it t- certainly teaches the value of hard work. It teaches you how uh, how our industry works in a real way, seeing members out in the field, uh, being hungry for work. Certainly had one spring where it got to be late May and I was hadn't gotten a call for for a job. And that's, that's part of actually how I got kind of politically involved and seeing the, the impact that can be made by transportation bills passing or bonding bills passing or other things that, that the local and state government can do to help create jobs. So I got involved politically in my union too. And at a young age, got hired by the 49ers. I was a staff person there from 2004 to 2012. And in that time, uh, helped to do their lobbying and did their political advocacy as well for the 49ers. Then went from there. I was both, as you mentioned, a Met Council member for four years, uh, first appointed in 2011. And then in 2015, I was appointed chair. And that was certainly a very um, highly charged time to be at the Met Council, for sure. There's a lot of que- there's always questions about the council and how they relate to local units of government, how they do regional planning. And then obviously they run systems like uh, they do some affordable housing and then run the transit system and wastewater systems. And that can have an impact on local communities that they don't always agree with. And since the council is appointed by the governor, that can lead to some uh, politically charged either issues that, that percolate or challenges. And then we, and then the, to top it all off, t- at the moment, we we're working through some really challenging issues with the Southwest Light Rail Project, and that still continues to be in the, um, you know, in the, in the uh, regional environment here for us to figure out that project, figure out how to finance it, figure out how to build it. Back then, they were choosing the route decision. I was ended up kind of thrusted right into the middle of that debate since I both was the chair of the Transportation Committee and I was the representative from South Minneapolis and had mm-hmm. a lot of uh, relationships in the Minneapolis City Council, the mayor, and a lot of the regional uh, players in that uh, project as well. So I was chair for the, the council for three years, and then a position came open here at the Carpenters, and I had an interest in at some point certainly coming back to what I feel like is my home, my roots, which is working for a labor union, representing people that go to work every day. It's a strong passion of mine, and I was lucky enough to come back here. I've been with the Carpenters now just over five years. And mm-hmm. I really about this organization they uh, pride themselves on training and professionalism and uh you know just doing things the right way working hard and the values that that kind of espouses this organization i think really does lead the way in training and professionalism and investing in back into their membership and been glad to be here for five years now yeah and one of the things that of course being on the labor side i'm interested to get your perspective on the issue of workforce and getting more people to come into the construction trades and training the workforce of the future. What are your thoughts on that? And what are some of the things that you're working on in that regard? Yeah, 
So there's a, a lot that we're working on. There's a, a number of initiatives that we've undertaken as an, as an organization. First and foremost, understand that it's a big cultural issue that we need to figure out how we can bridge the gap between our organization and people that may or may not have ever interacted with somebody in a union or in a construction union. The largest reason that people join the construction trades is because they know somebody, because their uncle was a plumber, their dad was an electrician or a, or a carpenter, or a pile driver. You had that immediate connection, either family, friend, or somebody that you know. Uh, in fact, a lot of research has gone into us doing some advertising, us spending dollars and doing other things. And that just doesn't break through the same way that a person-to-person relationship does. So then we ask ourselves, how do we create more of those relationships? The big thing is to reach out to community leaders and communities that we haven't been present in. So some of that is outreach to organizations. Some of that is outreach through uh, different uh, Spanish language media or African-American uh, neighborhood media. How do we break into areas that we haven't had much uh, much membership come from and much relationship and connection to? And then we have lots of curriculum that we work on too that starts at the high school level. We have a program called Career Connections where we're trying to talk with uh, workers at a younger age or potential workers, I guess, to let them know who we are and, and that we're a, a vital and, and a promising career opportunity. I think some of our competition is in, in amongst ourselves with the trades, which is, you know, come be a carpenter, don't be an electrician, or come come to this trade, not that other trade, uh, which is a friendly rivalry, of course. And then some of it is also uh, go down a, a apprenticeship program route rather than college. And I think, you know, slowly but steadily, Trying to win that argument that it's a better investment to go into a trade, um, you know, I think that's that's something that's just it's hard to get through to to young workers for a couple reasons. The number one reason why people join our union, we asked them and surveyed, is for the benefits for both pension and healthcare benefits. And if you're seven, you know, if you're 18, 19 years old, just about to enter the workforce, you're not always thinking about those things. A lot of times, you're thinking about those things when you're in your late 20s or early 30s, and you have a family. Uh, so our average apprenticeship age is a, probably about 27, 28 in that area. Uh, we're always trying to get that lower, though, reach younger workers. Um, mm-hmm. And then lastly, I'll say a word about retention. It's something that I hear about. I've, I've been to chamber events where business leaders are talking about retention. I've tried to do as much reading and research on this issue with myself, as well as the work that our organization is doing. Retention is as big of an issue as recruitment. So for every apprentice that starts their attrition rate kind of slowly grows up as they've been in our program for three or four years. So at the first year, they, st- they stay at about 50 to 60% of a rate. The second year is closer to 70 or 75. But by that third year, nine out of 10 of our apprentices graduate and stay in the industry and it becomes their, their career. So how do we get them to that third year? That's a question. Usually it's mentoring from the instructors. Usually it's trying to pair them with other uh people either in their immediate community, if it's a sister in the brotherhood is what we call our kind of women in the trades program. How can we connect sisters with other sisters? So then as a young worker, you, you can talk to somebody about their, your experience, what it's like to be on the job. Uh, same with our, we have a Carpinteros Latinos Unidos group for our, some of our Latino carpenters. And so we've been exploring other ways to how do we get our apprentices connected both with each other and people that have been around the industry longer. That focus on retention is big because, you know, we know there's going to be a lot of demand. The thing is, is you asked earlier, is if our union is growing, it certainly is in our membership and in our market share. And we see that. But it feels like to some of us who monitor the numbers, we have to bring in 
you know, two or three carpenters every week just to replace the ones that are retiring. It's the aging mm-hmm. baby boomers that are that are retiring and move, moving on, which is great for them, but a challenge for us to kind of fill those jobs. And if we grow as a union, we have to almost recruit even more than that two or three to one. It needs to be four or five to one for each retiree because hopefully there's that much more work uh, in, the, in the coming years and we continue to grow as a union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about the, and there's been a lot of talk about there's a tendency to push for your college education on everybody versus, you know, considering a, a career in the trades. And I remember touring the um, uh, local 49ers uh, training facility in Hinkley a few years back and talking to a young man there. And he talked about how he has money in the bank and making good money and no debt. Well, his, his friends who went to college route are struggling with uh, student loans and things of that nature. Not to say that college is a bad thing, but no. you know, there's there are good there are certainly pros and cons. Um, and construction's not for everybody either, but it's something mm-hmm. that I think should be out there and presented as a career option to young people. And um, you know, I think I, I've heard that message from 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 a lot of different people and including our friends on the uh, non-union side too it's you know there's mm-hmm. there's something to be said for a career in the trades so um just to uh, just to share that and you know that's that's a uh, uh, maybe kind of a tough nut to crack but it sounds like you guys are are you know really uh, sharing that message so yeah it's just to add one more Small point, which is we've done a lot of good research into the different um, demographic breakouts of, of generational changes, too. We've been recruiting millennials for a number of years, and now we're learning more about Gen Z workers. Mm-hmm. Just having that research as an organization, we can share this around nationally. It's not that different uh, on the East Coast, West Coast, or other regions like Cleveland or Detroit, Michigan, or Kansas City and St. Louis. They're having the same struggles. But what can mm-hmm. we learn about young workers about what it is that they expect and why they would want to join? Some of it is that, um, you know, hearing a hearing a story about their friend who has money in the bank and a pickup and a little more financial freedom <laughs> than some other people that they grew up around. Uh, and I've also uh, seen some research that shows a lot of the younger workers want to believe and belong in something. They want to have some passion for what they do. And that's where we hope not only do they find that with their employer, but they can also with us find that in a union. You can feel like you belong to something bigger than yourselves, a community that you can rely on if you get hurt on the job or if something happens to your family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's both a built-in social network and, and a support group for you as a person and as a worker. It's an important value that we that we espouse to. Sure. Um, you, you mentioned previously about bonding and with the legislative session coming up, I believe it starts on January 3rd this year, so just around the corner. What are your thoughts about the prospects for a robust bonding bill this session? And what other issues will you be tracking at the legislature? Yeah, I think there's a a handful of things that are maybe unfinished business or some things that didn't quite make it to cross the the governor's desk last session that we'll pick up on. One is bonding for sure. I always like to frame up our issues for members as we're either working on labor standards or industry standards issues. Um, anywhere from safety to wage and hour protections, things that help workers get paid the, the wage that they're owed, and bills and ideas and, and uh, policy that helps to create jobs. So it's either jobs or labor standards and labor policy. And so 
In the jobs front, you have bonding. Uh, I'd add to that the transportation issue is a big one for us. It puts a lot of our members to work either building bridges or building the transitways like a project like Southwest Light Rail or other sort of infrastructure that helps to both put our members to work uh, today, but then there's also creates the the demand and the transportation network that will then help hopefully people build up and build vertically to build buildings and create jobs that way. Transportation, uh, there's, I think, two things to think about. One is how do we potentially move a bill early that that helps uh, MnDOT and the other agencies that are going to program those uh, uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, those IIJA dollars from the Fed, uh, mm-hmm. from the federal government. So the quicker that that happens, the better position will be to capitalize on that. And then if there is a longer term transportation uh, bill, too, that's certainly something I think Chairman Hornstein and Dibble have talked about for a number of years. Back the last time the Democrats had the trifecta in Minnesota government, uh, they accomplished a lot of big things. And one of the things that didn't quite make it was a transportation bill that they were close to. The Senate passed the bill that had some big revenue generators, both gas tax, a motor vehicle sales tax increase, I believe, and, and other sort of revenue sources that would have uh, funded transit a little bit better in the long term too. So we'll see if that materializes or not. I'm so, it's hard for me to say there's I think, going to be a lot of competing priorities. And on the mm-hmm. labor standards front, there's some bills that have either had the Department of Labor and Industry support in the past or our support having to do with um, uh, ocean notifications being made more public on job sites, things of that nature. And I think one idea that we've uh, become increasingly interested in is general contractor liability. And these, there are bills like this around in Cal- states like California, New York, Illinois, New Jersey, and a few other areas. And there, there's bills moving in other states. And um, it would, I guess, if there is a, a next iteration in, in the wage for us, the wage theft law, which is, gives mm-hmm. worker protections they deserve to get paid the wages they're owned, owed, it would be something like this. And what general contractor liability sort of says is if you're the general contractor, you are responsible for all these subs. Because too many times in our business, subcontractors have another tier subcontractor of a sub of a sub, and they're doing things such as paying people cash, misclassifying their workers as independent contractors when they're clearly not. They're clearly employees that report to a a foreman or a superintendent. And they do it to cut costs. They do it to save money on workers' compensation and to avoid paying taxes. And you and and the Finance and Commerce uh, publication have done a great job of covering this issue. appreciate the attention it helps to bring. The thing about our industry is it's very good at self-policing if they know there's consequences. And I think the wage theft law has helped to raise the awareness, but it still hasn't really had the impact on changing behavior of some contractors. And I think if people aren't going to comply with that law, we have, we'll have to think about some other tools that we could have that would uh, potentially help general contractors compete at more of a level playing field rather than have these subs that we know are just, frankly, uh, you know, sham companies and oftentimes just LLCs and mm-hmm. and uh, doing really unscrupulous things. Yeah, and some of the conversations I've had with legitimate contractors is that they, of course, it, it creates an unfair uh, playing field when they have to bid against these people who aren't paying workers' compensation, who aren't paying the taxes and things like that. So, of course, they can come in with a lower bid. Um, so I, I, I've, I've heard from a lot of different people in the industry that this is really bad, not just for the workers, but for the contractors who are playing by the rules as well. So 
That's that's definitely the truth. And and we see it too. I hear hear about it from developers and contractors. It's unfair for them. And some some uh, general contractors solicit bids from both, you know, LLCs or legitimate contractors. And of course, if they see this massive price difference, it's, uh, you know, for them, they say, well, the union price just costs too much. And our response is, well, it costs so much because you're actually paying taxes. You're actually paying your people a good living wage. The only reason the other side can get away with not paying that is because they're breaking the rules. And then we are, as an organization, at a, you know, this, in this position of trying to prove that, prove it after the fact and build a case. And we've done so. We've worked with the Department of Labor and Industry and other authorities to bring some cases forward, which, again, that helps in the long term. But um, ultimately, some of these general contractors are saying, this is a cost of doing business kind of issue. And we think it, we, we would rather take the chance of getting caught sometime months and maybe years later rather than paying our people. And the most egregious case recently has been at the uh, MV Ventures at the Egan site down at the next to the Minnesota Vikings practice facility. We've met with them numerous times and tried to talk with them. Workers have come forward. Really bad things happen on this job site. And their answer is, well, they signed a contract saying that they weren't going to, that they were going to follow all the rules. Well, that's fine. Everybody can sign contracts saying that it's up to in our belief, the general to kind of police that even if they're not legally liable today. And, you know, maybe they will be, if we can move this bill through the legislature, they still have a moral responsibility. They still have a responsibility to the community to keep track of what's going on at the job site, make sure that unlawful things aren't happening. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens if there's a legislative fix for that. What else are you looking at at the legislature, just kind of in general out there, um, you know, yeah, coming I, here? Yeah, I'd say two other areas we'll pay really close attention to because I think there'll be a lot of activity is energy and housing. Uh, energy first, I'll just talk about that for a moment. There's just been this shift away from carbon uh and towards alternative and renewable energies. That's something that the legislature has grappled with probably for at least the last decade. Even if you go back to 2006, when uh, Governor Plenty signed a pretty big energy bill, at least in, at, at its time in terms of moving Minnesota's economy away from carbon, um, that set forth a lot of different things that have happened on the utility side, on the, uh, on the power production side. And so our role in that, some might say, well, what, what do uh, carpenters care about how you get your energy? Um, a lot of our members work in those facilities. They do work in powerhouses and coal plants. Uh, they hopefully do some work installing uh, some of the renewable energy projects, too, that will power uh, our uh, economy for the future as well. So uh, understanding that transition, playing, uh, seeing where, what kind of role we can play to advocate for both members that may be losing jobs in some of the facilities that are either being decommissioned and also seeing if there's opportunity to help build some of those renewable projects, whether that's hydro, whether that's wind, whether that's solar. Um, we try to train for that. We try to think about what that would look like. Uh, in certain parts of the, the regional council, we do more of that depending on the contractors that are ready to do that work. But it seems like there's quite a move toward, there's going to continue to be quite a move towards much more wind and solar. And uh, so we're just monitoring that and seeing what kind of legislative impacts there are. And we're pretty engaged at the Public Utilities Commission too at the PUC. Um, and then after energy, it's a housing. Housing has been an area, too, that at least the last session or two, there's been a lot more activity in those committees than there has before. I think we've always had housing challenges, but I think it's gone from a, a challenge to a crisis where the affordability question is one that's front of mind for families around the state. 
Um, there's questions about building affordable housing, how you do that, how you finance that. Um, frankly, as you know, and this experience of mine is a person who goes back to the days at the Met Council where you saw year after year the federal government taking steps away from funding uh, affordable housing. And so then who steps up? Either cities, counties, the state level investments matter that much more because there's less federal investment for, uh, for affordable housing projects. And then when it comes to housing, there's questions of how you do that. Is it, is it subsidies? Is, it, is there policy protections for renters? Do we invest in building? And if we build, what does the, the building look like? And you know, we support a, an all, all of the above approach, just like we do with either energy or transportation. Um, and we don't sort of have a, have a favorite way to do it, but we do think you know, we shouldn't have this debate or this discussion that the best way to build housing is to do it for really, really cheap. And frankly, at times, employing some of those same contractors I mentioned earlier, the ones that are cutting corners and not paying their workers, um, that's not the solution. We need to figure out how to have housing be a way that you both build to have the supply that meets the demand, and it can be a way that that people have good jobs. Um, they don't always have to be union jobs. I mean, obviously, I hope that they are, but uh, more than anything, it's important to me that those people, the people in our communities that are building our housing are also being paid fairly and can afford to live in the, the communities that they want to live in as well. Um, so housing will be very busy. There's There's been, uh, at a regional level, this discussion about rent control. We'll see how that continues to play out mm -hmm. in the city of Minneapolis and St. Paul level. We'll see if other cities kind of look at adopting similar measures. Uh, we, we've been opposed in the past and we'll have to navigate how that impacts new starts or new, new construction projects. But um, I think those are some of the issues that'll be be top of mind. There's a number of other issues too, from you know, marijuana legalization and uh, you know, sports gambling and other things and, and possibly gun control. I'll say this to, to you and your listeners, we don't really engage in those. If they impact our members to some degree, we, we need to know what's happening. But if it's not about either jobs or what we call kind of like core carpenter economics issues, we don't get too involved with them at the Capitol. Yeah, and the uh, budget surplus is another big thing that obviously a lot of people don't want to see investments in their favorite area, whether it's housing or infrastructure or whatever. So it'll be any on the governor's talked about rebate checks too, of course. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, if I could just add one more issue too. Um, it's not one that we're as engaged in today, but I want to continue to be more at the table. And that is going back to the workforce development question. And I say that because our apprenticeship programs don't necessarily get a lot of state funding, if any. Sometimes they apply for grants through Department of Labor and Industry or DEED. Mm -hmm. But by and large, our programs kind of fund themselves. But in other states, uh, either the K through 12 system has grant programs to steer people towards industrial arts and more of a tech ed model. And I think it's a good idea for the, the state of Minnesota to continue to look at if we do have either one-time money, what, is, what are some ways to help steer people towards jobs that are you know, good careers, and if and we hope construction is one of those those career pathways. If there's ways for us, either through the, the Minnesota Building Trades has a Building Strong Communities program. Mm -hmm. uh, the operating engineers have a, virtu a virtual school program. Carpenters, it's a little harder to think about doing virtual school, but if there's a way for us to either have more career connection programs or the Building Strong Community programs in their K through 12 pro in their K through 12. Uh, um, uh, schools of learning in the school districts around the state, we would love that. Like, for example, in Wisconsin, there's grants for uh, school districts. If they do offer 
uh, tech ed programs or industrial arts or more hands-on training. There's state grants for that. So maybe it's something Minnesota could look at and maybe learn something too. Yeah, interesting idea. It sounds like you certainly have a lot of irons in the fire now, and um, I, I know you're a busy person, so I appreciate your time. Been wanting to do this interview for a while now, so I'm glad we finally found time to do it. So, Absolutely. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Adam. We'll see you around, and uh, take care. Take care, Brian. Thanks. See ya. Bye.